You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Okay, so a few weeks ago when we started this set of sermons called Valleys Fill First, this set of sermons to the Sermon on the Mount, one of the things that I had said on just trying to answer the question, why are we doing this, this particular section of the scriptures? Why are we spending our time here? One of the reasons is because I love places in the Bible that in essence just, just kind of pull us up next to Jesus. That they just kind of give us a face-to-face sort of conversation with Jesus. And this is one of those places in the scriptures. It's, it's, it's Jesus' longest recorded sermon, Matthew 5 through Matthew 7. It's a three-chapter sermon. And when I think about this particular uh, section of scripture, I just picture it as Jesus pulling up a chair beside us, looking us in the eye and saying, I want to tell you about life. I want to tell you about life with me what life in my kingdom looks like. I wanna have that conversation with you, my beloved brother or sister. I, 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 wanna, I wanna talk to you about what life looks like. And he starts this set of sermons with the Beatitudes. Um, they're, they're just blessings. You'll see in Matthew chapter five, you'll see this repeated sort of phrase throughout the first 10, 11, 12 verses where he starts each one of these phrases with blessed are. Now there's a lot of ways that blessing can be used in the scriptures. This particular way is Jesus as a wise sage, as just the personification of wisdom. He pulls up a chair beside us and in that word blessed, he is saying to us, hey, I, I, I wanna show you the way to human flourishing. I want to show you as a human being the, the road that leads to happiness, the, the way that leads to that sort of fullness of life. I want to show you that road. And who in here doesn't want some of that? Who in here doesn't want human flourishing? That doesn't want their soul to be happy in Jesus? Who, who, I don't think anybody came in here this morning thinking, you know what I really want in life? I just, I, I just want to be miserable. How can I get more? Nobody came in here thinking like that, did we? What we're all thinking, I want more of fullness of life. And in this passage, Jesus is showing us the way to that. He's showing us the way to what our hearts really want. Our hearts have been hardwired to hunt for for happiness. And he's showing us the way toward that. But this passage also shows us that Jesus isn't the only one offering a way to happiness. This passage shows us that there's two roads to happiness. One road we might call the way of God, that's summarized in the Beatitudes. The second way we might call the way of the world, that that's summarized in the anti-Beatitudes. And many people have bought into the anti-Beatitudes. The world is, or Jesus is not the only one making disciples. The world does a great job at that. And the world is looking at you and I and saying, do you really want human flourishing? Do you really want to be happy? Do you really want that? Well, let me show you the way to that. It's in the anti-Beatitudes, the exact opposite of what Jesus is saying here. I love how Ray Ortland describes the anti-Beatitudes, the Beatitudes that stand opposite to the way of God. Like the way that God is showing to happiness is over here, but the anti-beatitudes run in the opposite direction. They sound something like this. Blessed are the entitled, for they'll get their way. But blessed are the carefree, for they'll always be comfortable. Blessed are the pushy, for they'll win. Blessed are the self-righteous, for they need nothing in life. Blessed are the vengeful, for they'll be feared by everyone. Blessed are those who don't get caught, for they look great. Blessed are the argumentative, for they always get in the last word. Blessed are the winners, for for they get their way. 
I grab, these are the anti-beatitudes. This is the world's way to happiness. And opposite the world's way, the, 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 the beatitudes that the world's constantly discipling us toward, Jesus is standing over here waving his arms saying no to that. That is not the way to happiness. This is the way to happiness. This is the way to human flourishing. It's being poor in spirit. It's a surprising way. It's, it's those who mourn over sin. The meek, that, that's, that's the way to, to human flourishing. It's the peacemakers. It's those who are persecuted. It's the, it's the pure. It's those who show mercy. That, that's the way to human flourishing. It's an upside down way. It's an unsuspected way. N nobody, nobody in the world thinks that's the way where human beings are gonna flourish. But Jesus here is showing us it is. As the wise sage, he is showing us this is the way to happiness. Now jump in and follow me. Walk with me down that road. And here we are today in the third beatitude. It's in verse five of Matthew five. Jesus says, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek. N not the pushy, not, not the self-assertive. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. So I wanna take it in, in two sections. The, the first section is what is meekness? It's, it's essentially the first half of verse five. Blessed are the meek. Let's do the work on that phrase. Then the second half is why do we need it? Why, why would we want to be meek? That's the second half. For they shall inherit the earth. So let's, we'll start with the first half of the verse. What is meekness? What, what does Jesus mean with that word? That word meek is notoriously hard to define. It's not an easy word to, to nail down precisely. And because of that, I think that this particular beatitude, out of all the beatitudes, this particular beatitude is the most, it's the one that's most often misunderstood. And because of that, it's the one most often maligned. So it's misunderstood. And we just have a way of like backing away from the table of this particular beatitude. I, re I remember a friend of mine who years ago, a, a guy that he respected, just looked him in the eye and affirmed that he was meek. And later on, the guy told me that the guy that was affirmed as being meek was like, I don't that didn't feel good to me. That, that, that didn't feel very affirming. I mean, is there another word he could have used? Now, why is that? Why, is, why does meekness in some ways just have a bad name? Why is it maligned like that? I think there's a lot of reasons for that, but one reason is because meek rhymes with weak. As simple as that is, that's just one reason. And because those two words rhyme, they have been linked together in kind of Western culture meek and, and, and weak. As a matter of fact, in a popular dictionary, under the secondary definition for the word meek was this, submissive, easily imposed upon, spineless, spiritless, right? Like if meek is code word for one hard slap from a wet noodle will knock them out, it's like, I don't want that either, right? I mean, if meek equals weakness, cowardice, spinelessness, timidity, peace at any cost, indecisiveness, wishy-washiness, a lack of self-confidence. Who would want that, right? I mean, I, Jesus wouldn't want that if that's what meek means, but that's not what it means. So, so, so what is he getting at when he says, blessed are the meek? In some ways, I think it's, it's helpful first just to think about the idea of meekness. So, so meekness, it has a relational dynamic and dimension to it. It's how a person... It's the posture that a person carries with them as they're relating to God and as they're relating to other people. 
So, so meekness is now on kind of the public, sort of relational, it, it's, out, it's out into the world in that sort of a way. And if you think about meekness, this is the posture of a meek person. It is the person who has gone down into the valley of poverty of spirit. That they have felt their own moral bankruptcy. They know their own need of grace. That they've walked with Jesus down into the, to the valley of, of poverty of spirit. They have, they have wept over sin. When they think about all that they have done and left undone, it produces in them just mourning. And it's that person who has walked down into that valley of poverty of spirit and mourning and has now walked back up into the world with people and carries that posture with them. That is a meek person. It's a person who that poverty of spirit and that mourning over sin has erupted into their heart and created a posture a way of being, a way of relating to God and people that, that is meek. That, that, that's the idea of meekness. So let me just kind of tie this together really quickly and just make sure we're seeing this. You cannot become meek if you avoid the first two. The, the first two beatitudes, poverty of spirit, mourning over sin, are the prerequisites to meekness. But when you have gone down into the valley of those two things, you can't help but come out the other side a meek person. Now, when you're trying to like nail down, okay, so what is, what is meekness precisely? What is that? I think rather than giving like a short, pithy, you know, concise summary of, of that word, I think it's better to see that word meekness as pulling together like a constellation of virtues down into one place. And the constellation would have three different sort of stars in it. So, so here's the first virtue that the word meekness pulls down into it. It's this idea of Humility. Humility. You cannot have meekness without humility. Now, ironically, this same word in Matthew 5, 5 translated meek. That word shows up again, the same Greek word shows up in Matthew 21, verse 5, and it's describing Jesus in Matthew 21. And when it's translated in Matthew 21, verse 5, it's not described as meek or translated as meek. It's, just, it's uh, translated as humble. That, that Jesus is humble. But you can see the deep sort of overlap between those two words. You cannot have meekness without humility. When Charles Spurgeon was commenting on what it means to be meek, he said it this way. The meek-spirited man is the very opposite of the proud man who must be a person of consequence and to whom you know that you must always give way. That, that, that's the opposite of meekness, it's, it's being proud. It's, it's always having to have that inner sense of like, you're puffed up, you're a somebody in the world, everybody else is a, is a nobody, but you're the somebody, you're, you're the big deal out there. It's, it's that sort of thing that stands on the opposite of meekness. To be a meek person means that you have, you have embraced humility. To, to be a meek person means that, that you have gotten past that inner sense of big dealness that we're all born with. You know what I'm talking about, that inner sense of big dealness? Like we just kind of see the world and the world just kind of our stage to do our thing on. It's just, it's just, it's our world out there. It's, it's just that own inner sense of being puffed up. Meekness means that, that we, have, we, have, we have sought to put to death that inner sense of big dealness. And, and when you're thinking about that inner sense of big dealness, it, it has two ways of popping out in us. One is that sort of overt way that, that comes out in arrogance. We all kind of know that. That's the obvious way that, that big dealness kind of presents itself. But that inner sense of big dealness also has a way of popping out in, in very covert ways through, through self-pity, the opposite of arrogance, right? 
It's, it's the woe is me, I am so terrible. Everybody should look upon me and feel sorry for me. Everybody should, should pity me. It, it also comes out in that way. Right now, although they look very different on the surface, if you drill down to the heart of those two ways of being, what you'll find deep down in both is self above all else. That's what you have underneath both of those two things. Self above all else. That own inner sense of big dealness is the thing that is ruling the day. But, but meekness, on the other hand, meekness means that we are saying no to meanness. We're saying no to meanness. Like meanness is no longer the controlling paradigm in my world. And isn't this sort of the problem with the world? Meanness? Like everybody is, is looking at the world through, through a lens that has them right at the center of the world, right? Like what we kind of demand from the world when we come out of the womb is we're going to be the center of the universe. We're gonna be the sun and everything else in the universe is going to orbit around us or we're gonna have a big problem with everybody else. And kind of the problem of the world is everybody's doing that. This is sort of the reason that sparks flies because we're all trying to get each other to orbit around one another, right? And it just, it doesn't work. And meekness is saying no to that. No to that deep inner big dealness, that, that way of seeing the world through a me-oriented lens. A week ago Saturday, we were... Uh, our family went up to Norman. We were up there going to watch an OU game, just kind of have a whole day with Laura's family. And... Um, I don't know if you've ever woken up and you kind of have a way that you think the day's gonna go, you know? And like 30 minutes into the day, you're realizing this day is not going the way you thought it's gonna go. I mean, this was that day for me. 30 minutes into the day, I'm watching my designs for the day circle the toilet bowl and it is being flushed down. I mean, I am just internally, I, meanness was just ruling the day. I mean, it's pity party galore. I didn't want to talk to anyone, irritable, harsh with everyone, kind of reserved and backed up from everyone. Just, I mean, a full-fledged pity party. I mean, that, that, it's just meanness. And meekness means that we are driving a stake and going to war against meanness in our life. And do you know what I love about Jesus? His humility interacted with my pride. You know that the easiest way to see your own pride is to get around a really prideful person. That's the easiest way. Like get around a person who wants everybody else to orbit around you or them and you're gonna see how badly you want the rest of the world to orbit around you, right? So just, you get around a prideful person and it's like stirs up your pride so quickly. And you know what I love about Jesus? He is so humble with our pride. In the midst of me just throwing a pity party meanness, ruling the day, he, he, I could just sense Jesus saying, can, can we just sit down and have a conversation about this? Can we just, and I just, I didn't want to. That's the last thing I, but just so kind, so humble, so, so gentle as he interacted with my pride. Aren't we grateful for a Jesus that's so humble? So let me just ask the question to you. Is meanness the, the sort of lens that you see the world through or is meekness? Have you, have you gone to war against your own inner big dealness? That the road to weakness, or the road to meekness means that, that, we, are, that we, are, we are fighting against that me-oriented way of seeing. That, that inner big dealness. Have you gone to war with that? 
humility. This is the first, when you're thinking about that word meekness, it's the first sort of idea that it, that it pulls down into its definition. Here's the second word uh, that, that meekness pulls into it. It's the word gentleness. So, so humility and then gentleness. You cannot have meekness without gentleness. Without gentleness. Meekness doesn't just stand at the opposite of pride. It also stands at the opposite of harshness, of self-assertion, of a pushiness. It also stands opposite to, to those words. It's interesting, when you look in the New Testament, take that same word in Matthew 5, 5, translated meek. The way you see that word translated most often throughout the New Testament is with the word gentle, gentle. That, that's the primary way that it's translated in the, in the New Testament. But isn't it interesting, although the word gentle definitely has a place in the New Testament, our world has no place for the word gentleness. It just doesn't have a place for gentleness in the world. Um, the, the world's motto, the sort of ethos of the world is the survival of the fittest. Our world is harsh, it's, it's tense, it's trigger happy. And listen, we've all been discipled by that world. It has seeped into us in deep ways. Like for instance, if I were to ask you the question, how do you really get what you want in life? I mean, how do you get it? When, when you can't get it, what do you do to get it? I think the innate thing that comes out of, of just all of us, because we've been discipled so much by the world, is that this is how you get it. You scream louder, and if need be, you punch harder. That, that's how we get what we want in this life. That this is how the world sees it. It's just, it's accepted business practice. This is the world's beatitude. Blessed are the pushy, the assertive, the screamers, the punchers. Blessed are the pushy, for they win. For they get what they want. This is how the world sees. There is no place for gentleness in this world. And you know what? Ironically, it actually, in some ways, it works. Like if you, if you really want to get what you want, scream loud enough and punch hard enough, and there's a good chance that you'll get it. But, but listen to John Newton show us, if we go that route, what we are sure to miss. Listen to what he says. What profit a man if he gains his cause and silences his adversary? He comes in pushy, assertive. I'll scream louder, I'll punch harder, whatever it takes to get my way. What will it profit a man if he gains his cause and silences his adversary, if at the same time he, he loses that humble, tender frame of spirit in which the Lord delights and to which the promise of his presence is made? This is the ironic thing about being pushy. If you scream, if you push, if you climb over, if you step on the throats of others, you, you may actually find and get what you're after, but I can assure you of this, you will never get Jesus down that road. You just, you're not going to find Jesus down the road of pushiness, of self-assertion. That's just not where Jesus lives. It's not where he set up camp. It's not where he's told us he could be found. The world may have no place for gentleness, but God does, and God loves it. Listen to these texts in the New Testament, Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit, okay, the fruit of the Spirit, this is what Jesus died to produce in us. It's what the Spirit is now living and at work tirelessly to produce in us. This is it, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, 
gentleness. There's our word gentleness, meekness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Galatians 6.1, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of harshness. No, that's not what it says, is it? In a spirit of gentleness, keep watch on yourself lest you be tempted. Isn't it interesting that Jesus is not just concerned about us correcting people with truth. You see a falsehood out there and you correct it. You bring the sledgehammer of truth and you make sure they know what the truth, that's not the way of Jesus. He's, Jesus is not just concerned with us being truthful with people. He's concerned with us being truthful with a tenderized heart, a gentle heart. He's concerned about the means that truth is delivered to a person. Is it coming out of a person who has felt their own poverty of spirit, who has mourned over their own sin? Has their heart been tenderized by that, those things so that it's gentle as it comes out to this person? That's how we're to restore and correct a person. 1 Peter 3, verse 4. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart. And by the way, this is, this is Peter addressing Marriage. He's addressing the man. Now he's addressing the, the lady in a marriage. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the, listen to, listen to these words, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle, that's their word meek, a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Do you know what gentleness is to God? It's an imperishable beauty. No, there's no, no one in the world is going to say that. What is, what is precious in the sight of the world is those who step on someone else's throat to go and get what they want. But Jesus, that's, that's, not, what's, that's not what's precious to me. Here's an imperishable beauty. This is what's precious to the heart of Jesus. A gentle and quiet spirit. Listen to how Sinclair Ferguson talks about this. He says, there's probably no more beautiful quality in a Christian than meekness. There's nothing that beautifies a person more than meekness. He says, it enhances manliness. Now, isn't that contrary to how the world sees manliness? Like, like the world kind of sees manliness as someone who can punch the hardest and fart the loudest, right? And it's like, no to that. That is not manliness. God is saying, here's manliness. Someone who is meek, a quiet spirit, who is, who is gentle. That is, that is a man that is precious in the eyes of God. And then he goes on. It, it doesn't just enhance manliness. It adorns femininity. It is a jewel polished by grace. If you want to know what pleases God, He's saying, this is it. This is the imperishable beauty. It's gentleness. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter four, verses one and two. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So what does it look like to walk worthy of Jesus? To walk with Jesus, to reflect Jesus in the way that we live. Not like the world would think. Here, here it is. With all humility, with gentleness, with patience. That gentleness is the word meekness with patience, bearing with one another in love. Meekness is to flavor every relationship. And for meekness to flavor that relationship, it means that we are gentle, that we are gentle. And aren't we grateful that Jesus is gentle with us? Do you remember how Romans 2, how Paul says that God leads us to repentance? In Romans 2, Paul says, here's how God leads us to repentance. He leads us to repentance through his kindness toward us. That's how he does it. 
That's like the mechanism. This is the means that, that he gets us to repentance. God doesn't come as a bully to kind of beat us into repenting. He comes as a meek God willing to love us into repentance. Um, years ago, I was out on a jog. And when I jog, I oftentimes just throw on a podcast and listen to a sermon. I was listening to a guy named Steve Brown uh, preach. Uh, he's an older guy, uh, probably 65 or 70. And uh, he was talking about this, this episode in his life when he was a teenager. And his first job as a teenager, he was like 12 or 13, was to grab his bike, to get newspapers and to deliver newspapers uh, for the local newspaper office. And uh, he wasn't the only one in the town doing that job. There were several teenagers. They would all kind of get together at the corner store before they would go get their newspapers. And they had this elaborate scheme set up where they had this way that they could all kind of walk into the store at the same time, had this scheme where they could steal um, apple pies in this corner store. And before they would go and sell the newspapers, they would just enjoy the kind of the fruit of their spoils, eating these stolen apple pies. And at one point, one of the, the boys said, uh, you know what, if my dad knew that we just did that, you know what he would do to me? He, he would kill me. And another one of the boys said, you know what my dad would do to me? He would kill me. And another one of the kids is like, you know what, my, my dad would literally beat me to a pulp. That's, that's what he would do to me. And, and then Steve talks about in that moment, he was just thinking like, what would my dad do to me? And he said, you know, you know what I think my dad would do to me? I think he would love me. And I just remember hearing that statement in that moment. I just, I stopped running. I sat down on the curb and I just cried to the Lord for a minute. Because I think that's how God interacts with us. In moments where we think he is about to bring the sledgehammer and break us into pieces, do you know what we find in God? A gentle heart. A, a, a gentle heart that, that loves our lack of meekness out of us and loves his meekness into us. We, we find the heart of God like that when we bring him our sin. So I, I want you to sit pause for a minute and think back over your last week or two weeks or maybe your month. And I, and I want you to ask yourself the question, where have you lacked meekness? Like where, where have you lacked that gentleness that, that makes up meekness? Who have you been harsh to? Maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a, a, a child, maybe it's a friend, maybe it's a coworker. Where is that self-assertion, that sort of pushiness just pushed its way right into that relationship that is standing opposed to meekness coming out of you? Man, what, what a wonderful morning for us to bring that to the Lord. So, so what makes up meekness? One part of that is humility. Another part is gentleness. And the third part, that third sort of part of the constellation that makes up the word meekness is this word patience. Patience. You cannot have meekness without patience, especially the, the sort of patience that endures unjust suffering. You can't have meekness apart from that sort of, sort of uh, patience. It's just a prerequisite to, to patience. Now, what is patience? Patience is the ability to suffer long with another person. Patience is a person, it's a person with a long fuse. They're not easily agitated. They're not overly sensitive. I can't, it actually takes some work to, to get anger out of them. They're not touchy in that sort of way. They're not, they're not tense in that sort of way. But when you're around a patient person, you know that you don't have to walk with pads on your feet. You know that you're not constantly on eggshells just waiting for anger to erupt out of them. You know that about a patient person. 
They're not easily agitated. When you, uh, when you take the, the Greek lexicon and you take that word meekness and you start doing some investigating, what you'll quickly find is one of the images associated with that word meekness is that of a, like a powerful animal. Think wild stallion, powerful horse that's untamed. And what meekness is, is that very powerful animal being tamed by reins being brought under control, made responsive to the reins. So, so when a person pulls this way, they go that way. When a person pulls to the left, they, they, they go left. That, that's your imagery for meekness, a person or an animal that's under control. Now, in the same way, what is meekness in the Bible? It's a person that has been brought under the control of Jesus. That the wild stallion of their anger has been tamed by the grace of God. It's a person that, that is a living illustration of Proverbs 19.11, it is their glory to overlook an offense. They're, they're just looking for opportunities to show that. They're just looking for moments where, where can I overlook that wound, that, that insensitivity, that, that moment in their life? How, where and how can I do that? They're just looking for opportunities to put that sort of overlooking an offense on display. So let me ask you this question. If a person were to describe the top 10 attributes they think of when they think of you, when you think of that person, what, what, what are 10 attributes you think of with them? Would patience make it onto your list? Long, fused, not easily agitated, bears with, hangs in there, suffers long. Aren't we grateful that it makes it onto the list with Jesus? That when we think about Jesus, it's one of the things we think of, that he's a patient God. I was just thinking this week about the patience of Jesus and in particular, his patience with me. It is, when I think about my life, it is mind boggling to consider how much I have sinned against him and how shameful so much of that sin is. It is mind boggling. Now, don't just take my sin. Now, let's take... Let's take the collective world's sin. So there's roughly 7 billion of us. We've all done a lot of shameful things, right? And just think about God's collective patience with the world right now. That the roughly 7 billion of us who have just rebelled and shaken our fist at God and just, just done everything we can to really shame God. And let's not just think about the 7 billion people alive now. Let's think about the roughly 100 billion people that have existed throughout the history of the world. And think about all of our collective sin done, wounded, done, woundedness done against Jesus. And now think about his patience toward us. I mean, just read the Old Testament. The next time you read the Old Testament, just pay attention to the people of Israel and ask yourself the question, if you were God, what would you do to them? What would you do to them? And I'm just telling you what I would do to them. I would rent an entire season of CSI just to figure out how to hide the bodies. I mean, there's gonna be some people dying around here. That's what I would do. I agree with, with uh, Martin Luther when he said, if I were God and the world had treated me as it treated him, I would kick the wretched thing to pieces. I agree with him in that. That's exactly what I would do. I would wanna kick the, the wretched thing to pieces. But aren't we grateful that's not how God has responded to us? That God has responded to our sin with, with patience, with long suffering, with patience that would even lead him to send his beloved son to earth to live for us, to die for us, risen from the dead on the third day. The patience of God. 
And, and what Jesus is doing in this beatitude is he is inviting us into his life of patience. And, and his life of patience is seen most, m- most sort of easily in how he endured unjust suffering. How he endured unjust suffering. Think about Peter for a moment. Peter was not a meek person by nature because no one is, by the way. But he was bold, he was assertive, he was pushy. When someone punched him, Peter's natural reflex was to punch back and to punch back a little bit harder just to make sure they didn't punch him again, right? That, that's Peter in the Bible. But over time, the grace of God, the love of God began to tenderize Peter. And eventually he got there. Peter became a meek man at the end of his life. The, the Lord loved him all the way to, into meekness. But when Peter is thinking back over his life and, and even more importantly, over the life of Jesus and what he observed, what he saw as he lived among and with Jesus, here's one thing he says in 1 Peter 1, um, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. Peter says this about Jesus. When Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. That's meekness. He suffered, when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to God who judges justly. Now, meekness wasn't easy for Jesus and it's not going to be easy for us. It's, it's just, it is not an easy thing to pursue and to do. When, when I read through the Beatitudes, I can read through the first couple and still have a little bit of levity in me. But when I get to the third one, I'm like, this is no longer funny. I mean, meekness is, it is hard. It is not easy to to be reviled and then not to revile in return, to to punch and not punch back. When you look at 1 Peter 1, 23, it it took Jesus entrusting himself to God. Like in the moment, Jesus is saying, God, this is so hard right now. I've got to keep myself entrusted into, into your hands. Even through tears, meekness whispers to God, God, I trust you. I trust in this moment that these people doing wrong against me, my fate is not in their hands, but in your hands, God. It's preaching that to ourselves that that at the end of the day, when when all accounts are settled, God will will judge justly. Meekness whispers like that to God, God, I trust you. But, But meekness intersects with unjust suffering in deep ways. In some ways, it's only relevant in light of unjust suffering. One one of the reasons I think that we draw back from meekness is not just because we misunderstand it, but because we actually do understand it. And we know that meekness in a lot of ways foreshadows the last beatitude of blessed are those that are persecuted for righteousness sake. Meekness is foreshadowing that. In in a lot of ways, meekness is, uh, it's assuming that in our life that we are suffering unjustly for righteousness sake, for Jesus' sake, it's assuming that. So I I think one of the things we have to come to grips with if we're ever going to to pursue meekness is we we just have to like put it on the table and and to believe it, that Jesus has never promised us a pain-free life. He's never promised us a life with unjust suffering. In in fact, he, he he often ordains unjust suffering in our life. He often allows people, evil people, to treat us very unjustly. And, and as his followers, should we expect any different? I mean, if, if, that, is, if that is Jesus's life, if Jesus said, I'm signing up for people to treat me unjustly, should we as his followers think that, that we're signing up for something different? I mean, I, I think this needs to be like on the front end, like we all know this is part of what it means to be a Christian. 
When we suffer unjustly, it doesn't mean that your Christianity isn't working. It means that you're actually being a Christian, following after Jesus. And the problem is like Peter, when we suffer unjustly, we have this justice streak in us. We get punched, we punch back harder. We're reviled against, we'll heap. They're, they're sort of reviling right back onto their head times a thousand, right? This is that justice streak in us. Just, it doesn't put up with people doing stuff like that to us, right? It, it just doesn't, it doesn't, co- like our natural sort of default way of operating just doesn't operate like that in the world. But, but Jesus says, here's meekness. It, it does do that. It does turn the other cheek. It does look at your enemy and love your enemy. That, that's coming later in Matthew chapter five. That justice streak that God has given us was primarily given us not to protect our reputation, our rights in the world, to make sure our demands are carried through in the world. That sort of justice streak was given us primarily by God so that we could protect other people, especially the more vulnerable. So if you're the president of the United States, just to tease that out, if you're the president of the United States, meekness is not what you need when ISIS shows up. You need bold assertion. That's what you need because you're protecting innocent and more more vulnerable people. But when you're the president, meekness is exactly what you need when your political foe insults you, reviles you. We should probably pray for our president in that way, right? Because that's exactly what meekness does. It's not out to, it doesn't assert itself in protecting our reputation, our rights to make sure all of our demands are heard. See, and and the problem with the justice streak that lives in us is for all of us, it's been distorted by sin. If you revile me, if you hurt my reputation, I'll hurt your reputation. If you come at me, I'll come at you. But Jesus, our risen King is reminding us, when you absorb a wrong from another person, And rather than returning that wrong, you return that wrong with good. You're never more like me than you are in that moment. You're never more like me than when you do that. When you embrace meekness like that. Blessed are you. You're doing great. He's saying, congratulations. You're following me. You're walking with me. He's reminding us. This is what life with him looks like. I love how... Rand, uh, Ray Ortland says this. He says it this way. When we know, or we know that meekness. So if you want to know, am, am I meek? Like, am I pursuing this? Am I, am, I, am I walking with Jesus down the road of meekness? We know that meekness has entered into our hearts when the gospel awakens in us such confidence in God that we're no longer out to settle scores. That's how you know. When Jesus has awakened in you such confidence in him and his ultimate justice that when you're looking at the world and people do all sorts of horrible things to you, you're no longer looking at all them saying, you just wait, payback's coming. You're just no longer out to settle those scores. And if we're going to embrace meekness, it means that today we have to, we just have to re-surrender all of that to Jesus again. We have to even surrender our lack of meekness. God, God we know we're, we're not very good at it. Even now, we're not very good at it. But God, we see it in your scriptures. We see it in the word. So God, we're saying yes to it all over again today. Help us by your grace. That's meekness. You know, when I, when I think of uh, our Western sort of modern Christian world, we have had it so nice for so long that I think in a lot of ways, we just have a way of not even purposefully or not intentionally, but when we read a passage like blessed are the meek, we just filter it through our own way of seeing and thinking. 
Like, like it, we just almost kind of read it out of what God would really want for us. Surely he doesn't really mean that we would patiently like endure unjust suffering. I mean, surely he wouldn't really mean that if someone slaps me, I actually turn the other cheek. Surely he wouldn't really mean that, would he? I mean, there's no way. I mean, I don't know what he means, but it couldn't mean that, right? But, but listen to uh, some church history here. In a book called, just called The Teaching, it'd be the English translation back in the second century. Uh, this is how Christians were taught. It was just a, a formal document that was passed around in the Christian circle, just teaching them about life as a Christian. And here was one of the lines in it. Be meek in the face of their anger. Their anger was code word for those who are persecuting you and wanting to kill you. Be meek in the face of their anger. And listen, this wasn't like the, the brand of Christianity that, that you could only find in like the Neiman Marcuses of the second century. It wasn't that. It was like normal off the shelf Christianity. This is just like what it meant to follow Jesus is you just knew I'm gonna have to be meek in the face of those who wanna kill me. That's just what life with Jesus is gonna look like. Listen to Jonathan Edwards a couple of centuries ago. He said it this way. If we would be as Christians, so if we're, just, if we're gonna live as a Christian with Jesus, we must rejoice at the happiness of those that persecute us and weep and be grieved for their misfortunes. That's just normal Christianity. If you just think about the people in your life that you admire most, who is it? Is it the person that when they're wronged, they spend the rest of their life getting their pound of flesh? Or is it those who, when they're wrong, they spend the rest of their life pursuing redemption with gentleness, with, with patience? It just sort of smells like Jesus, doesn't it? And that's the exact life that Jesus is inviting us into. So, so we'll finish here. Why should we be meek? What, why is that? Matthew 5, 5 tells us, here's why. Because they, the meek, they shall inherit the earth. That, that's why we should be meek. For, for they shall inherit the earth. Let, let's just all stack our hands on this. Can we, can we just do this? Being meek will cost you in this life. It will cost you money, reputation, your sense of justice. It will cost you. Be, being meek will cost you much in this life, but it will gain you everything worth having forever. That's why we should be meek. And the second half of this phrase is emphatic. The they is like, in all caps, they, they, like the meek, like they and they alone, it's those people that are going to inherit the earth. In contrast to those who are pushy, in contrast to those who are self-assertive, always having to get their way demanding, they will have no share in the future earth. They will not inherit anything. They have no future. But, but the meek, They'll inherit the earth. So I, I love how the New Testament so often takes a concept in the Old Testament and polishes it up for us so we can see it shine. And this is what you have happening here in this text, in the New Testament. Jesus takes, they shall inherit the earth from Psalm 37. The psalmist says, the meek will inherit the earth. And the New Testament makes that idea shine. Do you remember the, how the Bible ends in Revelation chapter 21 and 22? John shows us that heaven is gonna come down to earth. God literally, Jesus died. He rose from the dead to usher in a new kingdom. This heaven, like his kingdom is gonna come down to earth. Like when we pray for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done, John is reminding us that there's a day coming when that's gonna happen. 
His kingdom will come down. His reign will be here in its entirety, in its fullness. And the Bible is showing us who is going to inherit that. When the kingdom comes down, it's saying that the meek is going to inherit that. It's, it's those people, the meek, it's those that are going to inherit it. And now notice that word inherit. It doesn't say that the meek are going to have to take out a mortgage on the new earth. They're going to have to pay their installments and maybe one day they're going to, no, it's, they're going to, they are heirs to this. This is a part of their inheritance. It's going to be given by Jesus in his grace to us. We're going to be owners of that. I, I hear that. If you're in Christ, that is your future. Inheriting the earth. Jesus told his disciples, I, I'm going to go away, but I'm going to go away to prepare a place for you. For you, the meek, all of my meek sons and daughters, for you to come and enjoy forever. And Stonegate, may we be a people on the path with Jesus toward meekness. Amen. Why don't you pray with me? to give you a moment for the Spirit of God to press into you what would be helpful and to wipe away what would not be. And There's one place in the Bible that Jesus opens up his heart. To my knowledge, it's the only place in the New Testament where Jesus does this about himself, where he says, hey, I want to open up my heart and I want to let you see what's deep down at the bottom of my heart. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, I am meek and lowly in heart. He's just letting us see his heart. This is who Jesus is. This is our exalted and risen King showing us that deep down at the bottom of his heart, there is a humble, gentle, patient meekness. And what would it look like for you to become more of that by the grace of God? What would it look like for the Spirit of God to be conforming you into the image of Jesus? What this morning do you need to bring to Jesus? Maybe it's your harshness. Maybe it's your anger. Maybe it's your, maybe it's your own inner sense of big dillness that you just can't get over. Can I tell you what you're going to find in Jesus when you bring that to him today? You're going to find a gentle heart ready to receive your sin, ready to help you in your sin, ready to empower a new way of living that looks a lot like him. So, oh Jesus, would you help us today? By your grace, would you help us? God, make us meek people. And it's in your good name that we ask it. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church. A podcast is never meant to replace gathering with your church to hear the preaching of the Bible. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. and would love for you to join us as we enjoy Jesus together.